From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jai. And I'm Tracy McRae. Staying active to keep fit. It's a goal that many of us work at, but with severe back pain, it often isn't possible. Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon Dr. Paul Huddleston is with us to talk about how treating a major cause of back pain can get you up and going again. And it's the size of a minnow, but the tiny zebrafish is becoming the next best thing in testing new treatments for everything from nicotine addiction to hearing loss. You can build the fish for addressing almost, almost any healthcare scenario. Mayo Clinic researcher Dr. Stephen Ecker joins us to explain how the zebrafish may someday help find a cure for spinal cord injury and a host of other medical problems. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jai. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, Tracy, aging brings with it a lot of challenges, and I can attest to that. (laughs) And among them is the ability to keep moving and to stay active. One of the results of normal aging is that parts of our spine, our backbones, actually lose moisture, and it's the discs between the vertebrae where that happens. In fact, the discs between the vertebrae and our spines are 80% water or kind of jelly-like. And as they lose moisture, these discs can shrink and provide less cushioning for the bones in our spines, our vertebrae. And all this can add up to back pain and can lead to immobility. It It can be difficult to walk. This getting older thing sounds terrible. Well, this condition is called stenosis. And here to talk about it is Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Paul Huddleston. Good to have you back to the program, Dr. Huddleston. Great to be here, Tracy and Dr. Tom. Thank you, Dr. Huddleston. And to make things clear, actually, as all of these degenerative things take place as we get older, the spinal canal can actually narrow, and that's what is called stenosis, correct? Narrowing of the of the canal so that there's not room for the spinal cord or the nerve roots. That's absolutely correct. I, I think of it more as, as part of the aging process. In uh, orthopedics, we're exposed to a lot of the joint disease. In the spine, it is not immune. That is, the disc joints and the facet joints in the spine age just like our knees and our hips. And as they become enlarged and painful, they can secondarily press on the nerves and cause it very difficult for people to walk sometimes. Facet joints? Yes, sir. What does that mean? The facet joints are the two small joints in the back of the spine that uh, work with the disc joint to allow normal movement. They can age just like our hip joints and our knee joints, but they form a circle, a surrounding of the nerves, so the spinal cord in the neck or the uh, lumbar nerves, the sciatic nerve in the low back, and cause pressure on the nerves. And that makes it uh, creates a constellation of symptoms, trouble standing up straight, limping, problems with the power in the feet that we call spinal stenosis. Are there other causes of stenosis or narrowing of the spinal canal other than just wear and tear, degeneration, aging? Yes, sir, absolutely. In the uh, older, the 50 and older group, I think the wearing out is the most common. But younger than that, people can be born with a narrow, a congenitally narrow spinal canal. People can develop uh, an excess of uh, epidural fat. This is a fatty layer that's in everybody's spinal canal that can uh, accumulate to an abnormal degree. This happens more in a younger population. That can create spinal stenosis. And sometimes, unfortunately, people have a more insidious diagnosis, such as a tumor, or they actually suffer a fracture or a break in the back, which can create that same crowding condition. What about symptoms? There is back pain, and then I assume there are some distinguishing features from a patient's standpoint of stenosis. 
Absolutely. One of the most common complaints that people will, will articulate and talk about is, I just can't walk as far as I used to. It's very common for people to, both physicians and patients, to make, confuse this with uh, poor blood flow to the legs. But it actually happens in an opposite pattern. People with, with poor blood flow tend to have more symptoms in the feet and the calves and then the thighs, whereas people with spinal stenosis usually have the back symptoms, the butt symptoms, buttock, and then progressing down into the legs. So the exact opposite. So does stenosis happen only in the low back or is, can it also happen in the neck? That's a great question. It can happen in the neck also. That's called cervical stenosis, but the symptoms can be very, very different. In the neck, we're talking about the nerves being in the structure of the spinal cord. We're about the belly button level and down. We're really below the spinal cord, and people get more just peripheral nerve symptoms, so weakness. But when you press on the spinal cord up in the neck, people can get problems with all four extremities, troubles with their hands, numbness, um, abnormal reflexes, trouble falling, difficulty handling, simple things like buttoning their, buttoning their clothes or, or their shirts. It's, it's much more involved. So it sounds like even though the problem may be up in the spine, the patient's symptoms are down in the in the legs or the thighs. Very often so. They're, they'll mostly come complaining of uh, arms and legs symptoms as opposed to our, our younger population that usually has more of a back pain, a primary back pain. My back hurts. I, I don't necessarily have the, the leg symptoms. That's not always stenosis. That's just... I hurt my back. <laughs> right. So two fairly common reasons for people to lose their ability to ambulate or walk as they get older. One would be spinal stenosis, but another would be atherosclerosis, yes, blood sir. flow. Um, the, the patient's family or loved ones actually is one of the first to pick up on this. They often notice that the patient is not standing up straight like they used to. Um, uh, the spinal canal and the holes in the spinal canal will open up very subtly when someone is bending forward. The very classic history question as a provider I would ask is, you know, you ha- you're telling me, sir, that you- or ma'am, you have trouble walking, but how about when you go to the grocery store and you use the shopping cart or you're at the, uh, the hardware store? And they will very commonly say with spinal stenosis, as long as I'm leaning forward on that shopping cart, I can go as long as I want to. Because that opens up the canal a yes, little sir, bit. Yes, sir, absolutely. Leaning creates forward. more space. They figured it out instinctively. They haven't put a name to it, but that is different from a situation with someone with a blood flow problem who may not be able to walk any farther whether they're leaning on something or not. And once you have interviewed the patient, you probably suspicion that this is what the problem is. How do you confirm it? Yes, sir. I I think for most people, uh, spine surgery, or in my discipline, the surgical treatment of the spine, is not necessary. Um, Fortunately, people can uh, improve with just non-operative things. So we try to manage the workup in in a responsible way and, and, and not necessarily order a lot of expensive or invasive tests, which can be painful or have some side effects sometimes. So normally we would get a, a plain set of x-rays, and you can see the arthritis very easily on the x-rays, and often that's all that needs to be done in the early stages. The arthritis of these facet joints that we talked about, the, the little connections between the vertebra that are just like joints elsewhere, only smaller. Yes, sir, absolutely. Is arthritis the main reason why people have stenosis? What are some of the other ones? That's the main one. Some of the other ones would be uh, some of the conditions we spoke about uh, or referred to, you know, the buildup of fat, which is called mm-hmm. epidural lipomatosis. It's a big, awful, horrible, hard-to-pronounce name, but basically an accumulation of excess fat in the spinal canal or uh, 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 something scary like a tumor or a trauma, mm-hmm. a broken bone. I just, when you were talking about uh, the things that you're describing, sounds to me like what... 
people my age would be talking about is herniated discs. You know, they have to go in and get their back. They have to have surgery to get that fixed. Is that in the same camp of what you're talking about? You could think of them as a spectrum. The herniated disc is, is suggesting that there's just a defect or an injury to the disc joint itself. Um, a common example would be someone who is uh, doing an exercise or an activity or helping a friend, lifting a piano or moving and felt a pop in their back, a uh, sudden onset of pain, and uh, and then back and buttock and leg pain over the next couple of days. That's an acute condition. It can happen suddenly over uh, with an injury. Spinal stenosis is some a slow, insidious process that happens over decades as people build up that arthritis to the point where it can cause pressure on the nerves. Yep, so both of them do the same thing, result in the same problem, that is compromise or pressure on the ner- on the spinal cord or the nerve roots. But the etiology is, of course, different. Yeah, absolutely, yes, sir. We're talking with Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon Dr. Paul Huddleston. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about spinal stenosis with Dr. Huddleston. And, myth or matter of fact, if I haven't had back problems in my youth and middle age, I'm not likely to have them when I get older. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're here with Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, spine surgeon, Dr. Paul Huddleston, talking about spinal stenosis. So, Dr. Huddleston, you've told us about the different causes for spinal stenosis or narrowing of the canal. And one of the most common ones is just degeneration and aging, which puts some pressure on the spinal cord or the uh, nerve roots. You've told us about the symptoms, which may be reflected in uh, uh, pain down in the arms and legs and really not cause any back pain, uh, even though that's where the problem is. So we also want to talk about uh, treatment. But before we do that, one myth or matter of fact for you. If I haven't had back problems in my youth and middle age, I'm not likely to have them when I get older. Myth or matter of fact? That'd be a myth, Dr. Tom. <laughs> Consider yourself lucky. I think uh, one of the uh, uh, the things that we all can uh, look forward to is the aging, normal aging process. And anybody that uh, participates in that process could unfortunately be at risk to develop the stenosis later. Well, then let's flip it around. What if you are someone who's had low back problems, low back pain, you know, as early as your 30s and 40s? Are you like, are you more likely to have some stenosis issues when you are elderly? Hard to know. It just depends on if it's an arthritic problem. Mm. Some patients do have this that runs in their families and, and they, uh, much as our uh, eye color and I think our hair color and other things, you know, we look a little bit like our parents on the outside and we, we behave a little bit like them on the inside too, I think. So let's get back to the topic uh, at hand, spinal stenosis, and talk about some treatment options. Uh, let's say that you have suspected the diagnosis when you talked to the, the patient, got the history from the patient. You did uh, tests that may uh, include just a simple plain x-ray, but might also include, what, an MRI or CT scan? Correct. Yes, sir. And once you've made the diagnosis, you've got to talk about, outline the treatment options. And what are those? The treatment options, I think of them as a spectrum. Everything from uh, very simple uh, home maneuvers, therapies that can be done, to the, uh, the very uh, most advanced technical spine surgeries or procedures. Um, we'd like to initially start with some of the simpler things, because fortunately, most people have mild stenosis, mild symptoms, and can benefit from 
uh, weight loss program, taking some of the weight off the back so it doesn't stress it as much, um, a, a supervised physiotherapy program to learn how to better control their trunk and core muscles to take some of the stress secondarily off the spine. So if you strengthen your back and abdominal muscles, that will take some of the stress off the spine? Yes, sir. Uh, many people will report an improvement in their symptoms, but the arthritis has not gone away. It's still there. They're just functionally behaving a lot better. And when you suggest these exercises to someone with stenosis, they visit with a physical therapist, and then can they do these exercises at home? Ideally, yes. I think for most people, the exercises are straightforward, uh, not complex, and it's just a matter of them disciplining themselves and applying it and doing it, basically. All right, so the two keys, really, it sounds like, are losing weight if you are, in fact, overweight and and a physical therapy program. That's where you start. I think, yes, sir. It's a good base-level ground intervention. Anything else you can do at home before we... Talk about the more sophisticated treatments. <laughs> some people, because uh, will benefit from an arthritis medicine. Now, some uh, patients have contraindications to that, but as uh, the wearing out of the joints in other parts of the body, it improves with some uh, both off-the-shelf and prescription medicine. We do try that in the spine also. What about other prescriptions that someone with stenosis might find some relief with? Some people, uh, especially to reference the stenosis or a disc uh, problem from an injury, will benefit from very short-term controlled use of a of a, a prescription pain medicine or a muscle relaxer. But we haven't seen that to benefit people long-term. And there's always a potential for the risk of addiction. Right. So let's say that we've tried all the home remedies and we've tried the anti-inflammatory medications and the pain medications and even prescription uh, medications and it's still not working or the stenosis, the symptoms are getting worse. What are some next steps? That's really when we usually first experience or encounter the patient and hear their story. Usually at that point, they've been doctoring alone or, or with a, a family practitioner, and they're referred to the surgeon for consideration of a surgical or procedural treatment. Really, we think of things really as in two camps. One are procedures like shots um, that don't involve a cut but can administer very powerful pain and anti-inflammatory medicine into the spine area that, that is affected. Is that a steroid injection? Yes, ma'am. That's, That's what correct. that is. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, they come in different forms, but basically using an X-ray machine to administer the injection and the medicine in the spine. Some people will experience months and months and months of reliefs, and I, and I have patients that come in once a year for a shot, and that's all they ever need. And you do it under X-ray control because you don't want to stick the needle in the, in the nerve root or the spinal cord. Absolutely. It's a lot safer that way. And uh, it, there's, it's quality control also. Some patients from uh, places that had had the shots administered without the x-ray, I don't know if the medicine ever actually made it to where mm. it was supposed to go. And where is it supposed to go? It goes right into the spinal canal, but outside of the nerves. There's a space in that area called the epidural space that uh, um, some of uh, the listeners may have had experience with, with epidurals or spinal taps for childbirth or surgery for other reasons. But it's in that same space they administer the medication. And it's called an Epidural injection. Yes, sir. It's the Epi- best thing ever invented, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Have you had one? I've had two of them. <laughs> Once a year. There's a candidate. Yeah. No, two kids, two epidurals. That's oh, the math on yeah, that well, one. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank goodness that's all it was for. <laughs> All right. So if, if that doesn't work, let's then move into surgery. Is, is there, are there surgical things that you can do to help people... Uh, sufferings with stenosis? Yes, absolutely. The surgical treatments come in both the simple and complex categories. So the simple surgeries are surgeries that um, most 
simply stated, create more space. It's a space problem. The stenosis is crowding the nerves, and we just create more space by selected removal of the bone that's actually making putting the pressure on there. This bone is coming from the joints, the facet joints and the disjoints. The complex surgeries are the surgeries that not only re- involve removal of the joints, but some stabilization or uh, uh, in, uh, attempt to get the bones to grow together to attempt to get a permanent cure. So What's you're it? fusing those bones together after you have decompressed the cord or the roots? For the complex surgeries. Yes, What's the average age of the patient that has that done? Oh, the average age of the patient's anywhere from the early 50s to 70s. Mm-hmm. I, the upper Im- limit depends on two things. People wonder if they're too old for these operations. The main risk comes from the cardiac risk, the heart risk. So mm-hmm. if they have an, un- uh, an old heart but a young body, then that's not a, a, a safe combination. <laughs> and the second would be the quality of their bone. Many women will start to suffer from osteoporosis, and it will make the quality of the bone less and more difficult to achieve a success. Fusion for the complex. This is not a 15-minute operation, is not it? at all. No, sir. It can be hours. So how do you, how do you know whether or not you need to stabilize someone after you have decompressed the the uh, cord or the nerve roots? Some of it can be predicted from the pre-surgical testing. Some special X-rays can deter- help predict whether the spine's flexible or stiff. And some of it's determined during the surgery itself. Uh, the goal is to remove all the pressure. And if at the end of the pressure removal the spine is sloppy or unstable, then that's where the surgeon makes the decision to do the fusion. And right. hopefully you need the little surgery and not the big surgery. But, you know, it's good to know that there are options for this problem because as we're all living longer, it's more and more common, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I want those options for myself. <laughs> Let's go back um, because I don't want to have to, people to worry about surgery or steroid shots or any of that. And just one more time, tell us the lifestyle modifications. If people are starting to have some back issues, what are some things that they could be doing now to uh, maybe ward off that down the path? Well, I'm, we don't have anything that actually prevents it. It's just that I think uh, there are things that absolutely make it worse. So being overweight, being deconditioned, not having a good understanding of your own core strength and, and flexibility, those will all make it much harder for someone with spinal stenosis to have a high quality of life. you got to eat right, you got to exercise, and you got to lose weight. How many times have you heard I've that heard on that. this program? Wait, is smoking weigh in on this anywhere oh, yeah, at all? Yeah. Smoking's bad for your spine, Actually, too, right? it's more common in smokers, isn't it? It, it, it? Smokers have more back pain, just oh as a baseline. Gosh. So I was just kidding. I should have learned that by now. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Huddleston, for bringing us up to date on the latest in diagnosing and treating spinal stenosis. Dr. Huddleston is an orthopedic surgeon at Mayo Clinic. It was good to see you again. Great to be here. Great to have a chance to speak. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, the tiny zebrafish is helping to develop treatments for a host of problems from nicotine addiction to hearing loss. Also, recurring fever in children, how to recognize it and how it's treated. A reminder that if you have a question you'd like us to answer on an upcoming program, you can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and Medical News with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. Go ahead, pour yourself another cup of joe. Research shows that coffee may be really good for you. Here's Mayo Clinic Dr. Donald Hensrud. Up to three, four, maybe even five cups a day of coffee may contribute to a decreased risk of type 2 diabetes, uh, Parkinson's disease, liver disease and liver cancer, possibly heart disease. So overall, the benefits, the health benefits are pretty, pretty good with coffee. 
And new research from Johns Hopkins shows coffee may reduce your risk of MS. But Dr. Hensrud says if you have side effects such as heartburn or insomnia, you might want to cut back on those lattes. And now let's talk about peanut allergies. It seems more and more people can't eat peanuts. Researchers from King's College in London found that if you eat peanut products early in life when you're a baby, it cuts the risk of developing a peanut allergy by about 80%. Wow! Mayo Clinic Dr. Martha Hart says this study is important because for the first time it shows we may be able to prevent peanut allergies in children. But she says more research is needed to figure out how and when to introduce peanut products to kids at high risk. And parents should not try this on their own. Definitely talk to your healthcare provider about the best way to deal with potential peanut allergies. And that's a look at headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shah. And I'm Tracy McRae. Zebrafish. Have you heard of zebrafish? <laughs> well, you know, it sounds like an exotic species that you might find on the menu of some expensive restaurant <laughs> in Paris or <laughs> Milan, but you know, that's not very likely because zebrafish is actually a minnow. Uh-huh. So you, you'd have to order a lot of them to get a, <laughs> Appetizer. A, an entree. Yeah. But despite its size, the tiny zebrafish actually has a lot in common with humans. It's amazing. And because of that, it has become important in developing treatments for things like, believe it or not, nicotine addiction <laughs> and for studying nerve regeneration that may someday benefit people with spinal cord injuries, a day we've all been waiting for. Wow. Well, here to talk about this remarkable little fish is Dr. Stephen Ecker. He is a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at Mayo Clinic, and he's also the director of the Zebrafish Research Program at Mayo. Welcome to the program, Dr. Ecker. Well, thank you very much. Very exciting to be here. Dr. Ecker, it's great to have you. You you have an interesting job working with zebrafish all day. I do. It's a great job. Now, how did this whole thing start? I'm a molecular biologist, and I'm interested in understanding human disease, and being able to do new tools um, is a question. So being able to ask questions, do disease model, understand how um, we are healthy and how we um, that health is adversely affected is a part of my job. I think when people are doing medical, think about medical research, though, they think about lab mice or lab rats rats. or something Mm -hmm. like that. So we're talking about something that's much smaller. How is it that zebrafish research translates so well into human research? And whoever figured out that there was a similarity? (laughs) Sure. So the zebrafish research has come online the last 20 years. It's the number two lab rat, shall Mm. we say, animal Mm -hmm. model over the mouse. So Mm. lots of labs in the world use them. Um, And their advantages are because they're small. So for example, we have in a a Mayo Clinic zebrafish facility, 70,000 adult zebrafish today in in our fish farm. And they're how big? They're uh, about an inch long. Little zebrafish all over the place. So how is it that, you know, we said the list of Things like a smoking cessation and hearing loss. Let's start with smoking cessation. How is it that that research goes? Well, it's important. The number one preventable cause of death and excess healthcare costs in this country is still smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, almost one in five, maybe one in six Americans smoke. 40 to 60% of them will die from their smoking. So it's still a major problem. So this is, we have, a few therapeutics that are coming online. The Mayo Clinic is very mm-hmm. um, rich, over 25 years of pushing this very important area. Um, but there's still many patients that don't respond to the current therapeutics or they try to quit and they can't quit. So we're trying to find new options for so, them. So 
that's the drugs that's, like you can test drugs on zebra fish yes, and right. see if they were see if they will work in humans yeah that's exactly the idea so the systems that that are uh, that are um, important for people to become dependent and responsive to nicotine which is the addictive substance in in tobacco um, and in cigarettes has the same system in fish and so we can regenerate since we have the ability to rapidly generate a lot of fish animals, we actually, most of their larvae, most of the small fish we're working with are in little petri dishes. Hmm. And so you can do, you can literally add the candidate drugs just in the water. And then you actually look for it. And what we published last year was a, a whole profile showing that the current frontline drug, Vreniclin is the chemical that sometimes trade name is Chantix, mm-hmm. um, will also work in zebrafish. And so we've been working with looking for new drugs, new candidate drugs, to help um, make Chantix better or to help the patients that don't respond to Chantix. And that's that's an, a, a direct experimental system what we built here at Mayo. Well, uh, so I don't, I don't quite understand how you do this. So you use the varenicline on the, on the fish, but... Uh, how do you know that the fish doesn't want to smoke anymore? So, right. So there's, so smoking and any addiction is very difficult. It's a very difficult, I call it an A to Z problem. And we break the A to Z problem into smaller pieces, A to B, B to C, C to D. So that's the, that's the, the way we use now in zebrafish will only model some parts of this. It will only mimic pieces of it, but we're looking for the pieces that we know are efficacious in the clinic. So, Vreniclin works by blocking the nicotinic receptors from receiving the nicotine signal. That's the, that's the current um, hypothesis for how it works. So we showed that, that Vreniclin will block in zebrafish the central nervous system from responding to exogenous nicotine. So, so how do you know that? So we, there's, that's the whole system, right? You put it all in place, you use nicotines has, um, for example, will, um, activate, will make people more mobile. All animals on the planet given nicotine will be more mobile. It's called locomotor activation. So you get the zebrafish addicted to nicotine? We, we don't use, we don't use the addiction. <laughs> so we, we have, that's chronic treatment and okay. we have models, but the, the therapeutic we're working on was the same efficacious, efficacious approach, the same point with which vereniclin works in the clinic, which is actually not, it's helping people achieve abstinence. Hmm. Okay. Which is different than dealing with the, with the dependency. We, we, that's another project. So mm-hmm. if you think of A to B, B to C, we're working on sort of C to D and relapse, which is what you're really asking, is really the, the holy grail in the field. That's the, the Z part. Can you really make a, have a patient no longer be dependent on or the nicotine. drug like nicotine or ethanol or cocaine or methamphetamines? How do you know what to work on? I mean, obviously addiction right. is, a, is a huge problem. How do you choose what you're going to study? Yeah, it's a great, it's like a, kid in a candy store because the zebrafish system, um, our tools are coming online. They're now the most genetically uh, what we call tractable. So we can do more with the fish than any other model system. I used to say that the mouse was better, but the answer is that we, the last few years, the fish is the most tractable system. So you can do a lot of systems. You can build the fish for addressing almost, almost any healthcare scenario where the fish has the same 
processes. So do you have some fish who are genetically engineered and ready to go to test smoking cessation and another tank of them that are genetically engineered and ready to test hearing loss? Yes, or vascular permeability or get cancer, Mm -hmm. right? Different forms of cancer, right? So in that, in our fish facility, we have 16, 17 laboratories Mm -hmm. that are using zebrafish for all these different um, research areas. Can you give a, a zebrafish cancer? You can. Jane Zhu is a wonderful young faculty. I'm giving her an important plug. She does uh, zebrafish cancer biology for neuro- neuroblastoma, and she's really trying to get at the genetics for it, and then the hope is to understand the pathway to go after new therapeutics. So you can give uh, a zebrafish neuroblastoma, which yes. is a kind of tumor normally seen in children. That's right. And then you will figure out from there what sort of treatments work on the zebrafish that may then... Uh, help with humans. That's right. We're trying to accelerate the opportunity for getting new therapeutics into the system. So we're not, for example, we're not really trying to compete with mice or rats or any other system, but we're trying to get at um, either pathways, more rapidly to pathways, which is, of course, critical in understanding mm-hmm. the science behind a, a disease or a, or a or a health process, and then ideally identifying candidate molecules that were that are now done in an in vivo setting. The fish is in vivo. We do a lot of the work, a lot like people do in vitro for cells, but it's all in, in vivo. Petri, petri dish. So it's literally in a petri dish, but it's all in vivo. Hmm. And so we end up on. We instantly get toxicology. We in, we instantly get um, initial side effect phenomenon plus the efficacious, right? Whether it's working. And so the hope. Right. The hope is that that's going to accelerate our drug development in many of these areas. And so, one of them that you mentioned uh, that we talked about was the um, severed nerves of spinal cord That's injuries. right. So John Henley here at, at Mayo is really pushing that. It's very exciting research. So he showed that there's a, a spinal a nerve regeneration issue um, when you sever the fish, and he's got a solution that it's a multi-active solution that allows that fish to restore regeneration. So the question becomes, can how? So the next step is how. Right. You know, how you use that or what are the situations in people that that's relevant to you and are the conditions around which you can enhance that. So this is this is all the science that's really trying to push that, uh, the field in fish. So you can actually allow a fish's spinal cord to regenerate? Yes. Really? Yes. And some, so won't, hopefully won't be that long before you can do it in humans? Yeah, it will, the heart will regenerate, the spinal cord will regenerate. Now, the, the, this is the, we have lost, actually hearing will regenerate. We, humans have lost this ability over time. So our ancestors, our common ancestors had this ability and we've actually lost it. And really? we're hoping, we're hoping, so for example, in hearing loss, okay, for hair cells, there are multiple examples where only, so where only a single step Mammals are only a single step away from um, fish and birds and amphibians, for who, all of which can regenerate their hair cells naturally. And so the question is, can we, can we add back to people a missing piece? So these are, these are the kinds of science that's really exciting because of the comparative biology. It almost sounds like humans have regressed. We have. In that case, <laughs> we have. That is amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ecker. You have to keep us posted on all the research that you're doing. Thank you very much. Yeah, fascinating. <laughs> Dr. Ecker, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Dr. Ecker is a researcher at Mayo Clinic, the Zebrafish Research Center here at Mayo Clinic. And we're going to take a short break. When we come back, recurring fever in children. We'll talk about it with the Mayo Clinic Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McCray. As most parents know, fever is something that will get your attention. <laughs> a sweating, shivering, sometimes listless child can be a cause for worry and concern. Fortunately, most fevers pass within a few days, but not always. Not always. Recurring fever, episodes of fever alternating with periods of normal temperature, can be a sign of something more than a simple infection. Here to talk about recurrent fever, also called periodic fever syndrome, is Mayo Clinic Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Thomas Boyce. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Hello, Dr. Boyce. Glad to have you with us. What about normal temperature? Before we talk about fever, is it the same for newborns as older children and adults? Normal temperature is the same regardless of the age. It's just that it's much more worrisome in a newborn in the newborn period if a, if a child has a fever. And this uh, periodic fever syndrome, something I'd never heard of before. What age of children does this affect? Typically, the onset is around age two or three. Um, we generally see it any time in the first five years of life. And how common is it? We don't have an actual incidence, but it's definitely the most common cause of fever in children that recurs at a, at a regular interval. Why does the body become overheated? Why do we have fever? Fever is a protective mechanism to help get rid of infections, but some causes of fever are not caused by infection. They're just the body's response to some unknown inflammatory stimulus. So you're saying that infectious bacteria agents don't like heat? Correct. It's, the, it's a way for the body to, uh, to get rid of them. And what makes the difference then between a regular old virus type of fever compared to the type of fever that you're discussing? Well, the periodic fever syndromes, and the most common one is called FAPA, P-F-A-P-A, which stands for periodic fever, aphthostomatitis, pharyngitis, adenitis. Oh, you got to define that for us. <laughs> yeah. that, those yeah. are some big words. Yeah. Those are doctor words. Yeah, yeah. Um, so periodic fever just means the fevers come every Comes month and goes. or so. We, got, we, yeah. we can get that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, adenitis are big lymph nodes in the neck. Uh, pharyngitis is a sore throat. People know about that. And uh, aphthostomatitis, the A is uh, the same thing as canker sores. Oh, so that's a good one for a cocktail party. You tell them you've got aptostomatitis. <laughs> I'll try to remember that. I better song. write it down somewhere. So all of those things together can lead to these fevers? That's right. So in kids who get FAPA or other periodic fever syndromes, but FAPA is the most common one, they're normal for the whole month until the you know about four weeks goes by, and then they get this sudden onset of very high fever, usually 104, 105 Fahrenheit, uh, can last for three to five days, and then it goes away as mysteriously as it came. So this usually happens during the first five years of life, I believe I heard you say? That's correct. And uh, is it, do most people catch on, do most physicians catch on to this being the diagnosis, or do they usually attribute it to recurring viral infections or colds or pharyngitis? Well, you hit the nail on the head. So most physicians keep diagnosing it as recurrent viral infections, it's usually the mom that makes the diagnosis. They go on the Internet uh, after three or four of these in a <laughs> row and say, well, how come my child is having the exact same symptoms every four weeks? It can't be the same virus. And they also notice that nobody else in the household is getting sick, so how could it be a virus? So, um, yeah, it's usually the mom that makes the diagnosis. Is it, you, is it every four weeks, almost it, it, it's uh, different in different patients. Uh, some patients are on a three-week schedule. Some people are on a five-week schedule. But it tends to be the same in any one individual patient. Yes. Sort of like clockwork, every it's, four or five weeks. kind of like clockwork. Well, then how in the world do you cure someone of, the, of this syndrome, of periodic fever syndrome? Well, it's fortunately, uh, somebody at some point tried uh, some steroids, and it melts the fever so away. So cortisone. 
the feel-good drug. That's right. You can right. treat anything with cortisone. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we use oral prednisone, and and um, and kids do fine with that. We've if you try the kind of usual things like Tylenol or Motrin, kids don't usually respond to that. They keep having their fever, but a single dose of prednisone will usually abort the episode within a couple hours, and the kid's back to playing and um, eating and drinking and acting normally, of course, until the next episode comes a month later. And this is something that they ultimately outgrow? And Correct. And can stop the, the medication? Yep. It's a benign condition. It doesn't cause any long-term problems, but it is um, troublesome to have high fever for several days each month. But they eventually outgrow it. They don't develop cancer or arthritis or other problems. Um, But it can take several years to outgrow. Almost all kids will outgrow it by adolescence. I thought that uh, having such a high fever of 104 would be dangerous for a kid. It's it's okay? They they outgrow it and they're no harm? Yeah, that's a common misperception that fever is dangerous. Fever, as Dr. Shives mentioned, is is protective. It's it's very... Uh, it's part of the body's defense mechanism, and um, it, it has a ceiling, so it doesn't go above about 105, um, and um, so it's not harmful to have fevers. Now, some kids will uh, be pro- predisposed to having seizures with a high mm-hmm. fever, but, um, uh, but for the most part, fever itself is not harmful. How is it that over-the-counter medications like ibuprofen, acetaminophen, even aspirin will reduce a fever? How does that work? Do we know? The... Uh, Fever is controlled in the part of the brain called the hypothalamus, uh, and it's just like the thermostat in your house. So if the body is, say, 98.6, which is on average the normal temperature, when you get exposed to an infection, or in this case an inflammatory process like uh, periodic fever syndrome, the uh, thermostat gets set to a higher level. The set point goes up, and your body will chill to conserve heat to get up to that higher temperature. Um, and so then, that's why you get chills. That's why, why you get chills, yeah. Mm, and, then, and then when the body realizes that it's okay to relax a little bit, the set point gets down, just like turning the thermostat down in your house, and you sweat and you dissipate heat and you bring your body temperature down to what that set point is. So it's all controlled in the brain. One of the things that you said was that uh, this particular condition, FAFA, is, is it? FAFA. FAFA does not respond to over-the-counter medications like a normal fever. Is Correct. that one of the things that you look for in making the diagnosis? It is one of several uh, clues that we have to making the diagnosis. There are several uh, things. One is that the episodes are stereotypical. So for any one individual child, the episode is very similar to the one before, and the mom will say this is how they acted the, the time before. The other is that they usually won't eat during an episode, but they will drink. Um, and then the other is, like you mentioned, the pretty poor response to over-the-counter fever-reducing medicines. How are tonsils involved with this diagnosis? Well, we don't really know why, but someone has figured out that if you take the tonsils and adenoids out of a child with FAPA, about two-thirds of the time, they'll stop having the episodes. So there must be some uh, mechanism there that's yet unknown. So there's still something to learn about these periodic fevers, about uh, FAPA. Actually, lots to learn about them, yes. <laughs> so everything you always wanted to know about FAPA. Never heard well, of you it need before, to keep yeah? us, You need to keep us posted as these development comes in. I would comes love in. to. Very good. Thanks very much, Dr. Boyce, for bringing us up to date on recurrent fever in children. Dr. Boyce is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Mayo Clinic. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a 
podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Do you have a question about health and medicine from one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Steepman, our social media editor, Audrey Castletime. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.